I'm Tass Mellis of The Starters. This is Ben Golver with the Open Floor Podcast. Hi, I'm Kristen Ludlow from NBA Inside Stuff. I'm OG Ananobi of the Toronto Raptors. Hey, I'm Elena Donon, and welcome to the Double Clutch. Double Clutch. Double Clutch. Double Clutch. Double Clutch Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Double Clutch Podcast presented by mbastore.eu. Remember to use the code DCPOD15 for 15% off all your MBA gear. I'm one of your usual hosts, Mike Miller, and today I'm joined by Jeff Stotts, a certified athletic trainer and consultant for a number of MBA teams. His website, instreetclothes.com, looks at sports injuries using statistical analysis to go beyond just the injuries, looking at their wider impact in both games lost and financial costs across the league. Jeff is a recognised uh, industry expert with the great Baxter Holmes of ESPN saying that he's considered the most authoritative public resource for tracking injuries in the NBA. Jeff is also an injury analyst for RotoWire and a contributor to DallasBasketball.com. You can find him at at in street clothes on Twitter. Jeff, welcome to the show. I appreciate you having me on. It's it's a pleasure to have you on. I thought this is, you know, the perfect time. Uh we've what coming up for 15 games into the season and it's just been absolutely rife with injuries. So you must have had a, a busy start for yourself. Yeah, it's been a crazy year. Uh you know, the last several years in the NBA have really been insane with with the injuries especially to the top level um talent uh you know it culminated i guess during the finals last year with both durant and clay thompson getting injured we've had some some carryover into this season already with those injuries but there have been no shortage of of new injuries so far this year either absolutely we're going to get into that but just before we do let's let's take it back to the start how did injuries and basketball coincide for you so I have always been a basketball guy. Um, I'm an athletic trainer by trade and started working for RotoWire doing just some basic injury analysis and breakdowns of the three major sports and just basically trying to put use my my athletic training knowledge to break down injuries into layman's terms so fantasy owners would know what to expect when their guys go down and how long they're going to be out because you know in fantasy sports it's a numbers game. You know you want to know <laughs> do I need to continue to invest in this guy or should mm-hmm. I move on and. I, I'd always had a particular love for basketball. It's been my sport, but like I said, um, it's the one I've worked most closely with in my athletic training um, background. And, and I've always just loved the NBA. Grew up in Dallas. Grew up a Mavericks fan when they were awful in the '90s, and then just kind of stuck stuck with them all the way through um, to, to 2011 with Dirk. And it's even been you know an, a great ride now with Luca. So it's it's been fun to be a fan. But then, you know, I, I wanted to offer some more insight and I kind of wanted to open up my doors for besides just the fantasy angle. And I wanted to launch my own site, but I wanted to do it with a, some kind of way to make myself stand out. I didn't want to just <laughs> open a blog and write about injuries. And I noticed that there was just never a good place where those injuries were cataloged or total t- mm. uh, tallied. And, you know, you always hear about, you know, <laughs> especially, in, within the last decade, we heard, oh, the Suns training staff was amazing. They were the, one of the best or, you know, this this group is really bad. I wanted to know, why do we say that? How do we say that? So I basically started tracking the injuries and going back and collecting data for players all the way back to the 05-06 season because um, that's when the injured list um, was taken out um, with the new collective bargaining agreement back then. So we, we, we got rid of those minimum five games out for an injury. And so you got, to, you got to see better trends from players because you got to see how quickly they came back from these types of injuries. 
And over a two-year process, I built this database and used that to launch the site. And it's just kind of opened up the doors to looking at trends in the league, uh, working with, fortunately, working with some teams, helping them notice some trends and, and working with the league a little bit to do um, different things. And then then writers like Baxter Holmes and uh, Tom Habistro and other guys that have just been really focused on player health and player-centric um, with, with the load management issue and those kinds of things. So um, it's it's been a labor of love, that's for sure. It sounds it. What an incredible sort of niche to to get into as well, though. Um, so you've catalogued the careers of over one thousand two hundred players, which sounds like a, a huge amount of of effort. Um, so let's let's bring it back to the NBA, the new season. Um, so according to Basketball Reference today, Thursday the twenty first of November, eighty three players are on injury uh, lists. Um, that's eighteen point four percent of the league. Is the NBA experiencing an injury crisis? I wouldn't go that far. I mean, I think number one, we're we're more aware of the injuries now, and we always kind of have a recency bias when uh, notable players like Durant or Kyrie Irving are, are injured. You know, we, we we see those guys, and and we they tend to stick out a little bit more. Uh, but there is a growing problem in terms of just the total number of games lost. Uh, the last two seasons have been. The, the highest in recent memory two years ago was the highest. Um, we crossed the 5,000 um, games lost injury on this mark last season as well. And we're continuing to see problems um, e- despite the fact that we're having advancements in medicine and things like that. So we're, we're trying to pinpoint the multiple factors that are playing a role in all these increases in injury and trying to decide, you know, what exactly is going on and, and how can we do our best to really reduce, reduce those numbers for, you know, for everybody, because the casual fan or the intense fan all wants to see their best player out there. And I think that's really the first and foremost of what what everybody wants when it comes down to it. Absolutely. So if it's gone over 5,000 games lost the past two seasons, I appreciate two seasons ago was the the peak, essentially. Is it something that's been trending upwards as a whole in terms of um, more, you know, if it's it's not a crisis at this point, is it something that is, is trending upwards with more and more games being lost? Or is it just these two years a standout? These two years really particularly stand out. We were actually on a downward trend um, the wow. two years prior to that. We, we were on a steady decline, and then all of a sudden we had this big, huge jump. Um, and some of that has coincided with with some injuries that have started to, to crop up on, in the younger talent in the league. You've had a lot of guys coming in, missing a lot of time. Uh, a guy like Joel Embiid came in, missed the season. Mm-hmm. Uh, ben Simmons missed his first season. Uh, several other players, come, you know, Nerlens Noel, uh, you know, all these guys who are coming in. And, and missing time to start their careers. Um, and, and while there have been other examples going back, there, there's still been problems, um, particularly with these younger guys coming in at this point. So is it then a case that the, the the recent increase is repetitions of wear and tear injuries, or are we also seeing an increase in sort of um, bone breaks and, and for want of a better description, like freak injuries like Gordon Hayward a couple of years ago? Well, you know, one of the big issues we're, we're currently seeing is, is potentially these guys entering the league with a lot more mileage on their bodies than in years past. Um, as the AAU scene has increased, you're, you're seeing players specializing at a much younger age. You know, a lot of the guys in previous generations came in and, and during their high school career, they played football and, and basketball or baseball. They played in other sports. So they were playing down. They were having downtimes. So their body wasn't coming in with quite as much mileage. Um, but now you have these guys basically playing year round with, with AAU. And, and I don't want to sit here and, and <laughs> cast a, cast a black mark on the AAU because there are plenty of pockets that do it right. But, mm. 
you know, there's, these are young developing bodies that are playing, you know, multiple games in a day, traveling, not under the best conditions. They don't always have the proper nutrition uh, available to them. They don't have the proper technique in the weight room. And, and so they're coming in, you know, with, with deficiencies in their kinetic chain or, you know, they've, they've built, they've built, um, different bad habits that are, that are rough on the body. And, and so you have to kind of recur, you see a lot of these guys have to basically relearn how to do certain things uh, at a certain point. And so that that's really where a lot of people believe this is starting. Um, and, and while we've seen an increase, uh, but, but unfortunately the problem is uh, there, there's no real good solution at this point other than, you know, potential steps that we, we can be made that can be made along the way. Sure. Uh, okay. So there's essentially the misconception that early specialization is needed to succeed is a significant player in this. People, players are going too intense too early. Um, I think, I think one of the, the quotes from Baxter Holmes is, is, uh, he did some fantastic articles in the summer, as, as I'm sure you're aware of, because you're, you're referenced in them, um, where essentially over a 13-year period, a, a 7- to 19-year-old can encompass more than 12 NBA seasons. So this is just it's a huge body of, of, of output physical exertion. Um, it's, it, obviously, it's very difficult to change that. When, when you consider that an, an average NBA career is you know, 4.6 seasons, essentially, just beyond a rookie contract... Do you think it's reasonable that there's that you know twelve year period of of amateur play followed by on average four years of professional opportunity? Well, it, it really depends on number one is the talent. You know what I mean? And, and really, you got to what are you going to do to surround that talent? Right? Um, are, are the people that are are focused on these individuals doing it for the right reasons? Are we making sure that that the talent isn't being manipulated or exploited? Um, you know, is it necessary for them to play this much? Now, I get that some players might be on the fringe for, you know, Division One contracts or scholarship, excuse me. And to be noticed, they've got to play more. They've got to have more exposure. But there's certain talent that doesn't need to be playing year round. They just need to be, you know, focusing on, on you know, doing things that are not going to be as strenuous on the body and mixing things up and loading their body in different ways that are not going to overload the body. So uh, it, it's it's a balance for sure. And that that's why it's so complicated because there's there's just so many variables in play here uh that that for a lot of these guys they have to either ignore or just accept to get noticed and eventually become an nba player and obviously the the um the prevention for that that the nba franchises are trying to implement is the buzzword of the last couple of seasons obviously uh highlighted by Kawhi leonard's success but load management um It's been a, a subject of debate this season significantly. Uh, the NBA has come out and uh, sent memos to, to the league reminding them about what load management can and can't be used for, things like that. Balancing everything out, is it a good thing that load management exists? I, I think so. I mean, I definitely think it in it's sound in principle from the fact that you know, I, I don't like the term load management because it, it does seem a little bit vague and up for interpretation. I, I do think it's potentially better than maybe rest, um, which we've mm-hmm. used in the past. And I mean, resting goes back years. This is that is not not a recent thing. I mean, you had 
in my database I have back as far as 2001 of guys getting rested. Now, usually we saw rest at the end of a season. Mm-hmm. You know, playoffs are coming up, so we're going to rest some guys and, and, and give them some extra bit of, of rest going into the postseason. But you also had guys missing time in the middle of middle of the season. And, you know, it was probably made most famous by Greg Popovich. You know, those, those <laughs> Spurs teams that were so dominant – you know, they they would make a joke out of it almost. You know, you had Tim Duncan being listed as rest old age, you know, or did not play old age when it was really rest. It was load management for, for lack of better terms. And they were trying to reduce the wear and tear on these guys. And, and so really what, what what load management the design for is, is fatigue management. Um trying to control the level of fatigue placed on these, these bodies, because there are so many variables, stressors that are applied to each individual player throughout a game, throughout practice, throughout their lives, that the best way to do that is to control the most intense uh, activity in their life. And the most intense is often games. So if we can reduce the amount of, of load, um, and placed on their body by letting them sit one game that is hopefully going to help create a balance for that player that is going to help reduce fatigue and re- reduce the risk of overuse injuries or some other type of soft tissue injury um, that would then result in more missed time. So load management then, it's, it's, it's more than just resting, of course. It's, you know, they, they, they take into account um, practices, individual workouts, uh, recovery, flights, everything like sleep, basically any output, essentially energy expelled by by an athlete. Now, without you know going in, breaching any of your NDAs, but f- with your sort of insider knowledge, um, what is the process for determining a player, and how do you go about setting these individual markers? Because obviously, player A is significantly different in both physical makeup and 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 body type from player B. Yeah. So, you know, if, if we're going to make cookies and brownies, we're essentially going to use the same ingredients, right? We're going to use eggs and sugar and, and milk and flour and those kinds of things. So you've got to do the same with players. You can't treat every player the same thing. It's going to be two different things, right? You're obviously not going to treat, treat, treat a player like J.J. Barea the same as you would a big like Joel Embiid. There, there's going to be a difference in the way they're managed. And it's all those variables you talked about. So you, you can't take a cookbook approach to their their load management or their recovery. It's got to be feedback from the players. It's got to be nutrition for that particular player. It's got to be um, the number of reps they're getting in the game, which obviously fluctuates for some players. Um, how are we going to simulate still to maintain their their endurance, their cardio, their, their conditioning during the season when they're not maybe playing as much? But then you also have other variables that come into play. How many years have they been in the league? How tall are they? What, what are those other the other things? So the body has to be system, uh, systematically loaded, and you've got to use all the information available. And it varies from team to team um, that's at your disposal to then decide what's going to be best for that player. And you definitely want to try to include the player in that because um, it's it's them, <laughs> it's their bodies, it's sure. their career, it's their their uh, their livelihood in a lot of different ways. And so including them in the process is key because if you can explain to them that this one game off, even though you're super competitive and want to play this team could potentially prolong your career, that that's going to make a lot of sense. And that's going to put everybody on the same page because the ultimate goal is to have everybody playing at the right time to win. And, you know, you're playing the short-term and long-term game with the games themselves, but also the players' uh, overall workload. So is there much pushback from players then? Because, I mean, obviously the league and the franchises um, 
you want players as healthy for as long as possible. You want to absolutely maximise their on-court abilities. Um, you don't want to see injuries, cutting short careers, anything like that. Um, and at the same time, you know, fans get frustrated having spent, you know, hard-earned money on on tickets to games and then their their favourite player not play. Do you? Is there then sort of almost like a coaxing that needs to be done? You you, you get a lot of pushback from players who, like you say, are ultra competitive and want to be on the floor. Sure, I, I think I think that's natural. I think at any level, you know, whether it's high school, college, professional, you tell tell an athlete they don't get to play, they're going to be frustrated. Um, it's just putting things into perspective. And that's why they need to be involved in the process of the load management for, again, lack of better terms, but mm. start to make them understand. And you have a superstar in Kawhi Leonard that's completely bought into this, right? Like a, a guy that has completely said, it's going to make me feel better. It's going to help help me. It's going to help me. <laughs> um, and he and he, he has he's revolutionized the term load management. Uh, and so I think more guys are willing to do it, it now, maybe so than in the past. But that still doesn't mean that you know some guys are are going to be completely on board with having to sit out. But you know, hopefully, uh, again, putting them, things into perspective will help and and get them to, to realize that the the point is to maximize everything right whether that's games played minutes played points scored uh, which then leads to winning which then can lead to endorsement deals you know it, it's all it all goes hand in hand in this big soup <laughs> and getting everybody to understand how it all works and, and, and see the benefits of every little thing that goes into it um, can be difficult but in the long run is usually the best plan yeah no, I, that, that makes a, a lot of sense um you, you sort of touched on it earlier and we're, we're looking at we're now in an era where there's been significant advances in science, um, better standards of training, uh, things like that, um, much more analytical look at things. So we're looking at a situation where these athletes now are so finely tuned. Um, and you mentioned there was a downtrend previously. So are, are we seeing less serious injuries reducing because we're able to prevent them by by training athletes um, so precisely, but and and if we are, does that mean that the sort of kickback is is they're exposed to a greater risk of serious injury, or is that? Well, it's 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 risk mitigation. Really, you mm. can't you you truly can't. I can't tell you do this and you're not going to get hurt. Sure. Right? If that were the case, I'd I'd be billionaire and solving the 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 league's problems. We wouldn't be having this conversation. The, the the question is how do we how do we mitigate our risk and, and how do we reduce the potential of injuries whether that's I mean obviously the less exposures the less chance of an injury right and so if a guy doesn't play there's less chance of him to get hurt sitting on the bench um, but you know it's the other injuries that we have to try to account for and and again like like we've said so you can't account for freak injuries and that's what we're seeing a lot of this season you know <clears throat> Steph Curry had a historically bad ankles. And they did a lot of training to retrain his ankles and his core strength and, and find a good balance there. But none of that mattered when a big guy falls on your hand and you break your hand. Uh, you, just, you, you can't predict or prevent those types of injuries. So I wouldn't say we're necessarily a reduction in in big injuries or severe injuries because it, it depends on the injury. It also depends on the timing, um, especially when it comes to games lost. Because you know, two years ago, we lost Gordon Hayward and Jeremy Lin on the first game of the season. And so they both attributed 81 games lost to their respective teams. Mm -hmm. And so that's going to inflate your total versus a guy, you know, that tears their ACL like Clay Thompson in the final game of, <laughs> of the postseason. That's not going to reflect any on last year, but it's definitely going to have some carryover effect this year. So it's very fluid. 
some of the injuries we've seen uh, have been reduced reduced in terms of frequency a little bit, but it's still potentially too early to see if that's a true trend or just, you know, an anomaly, but, but others are, are we're seeing an increase. It seems to be a lot more uh, Achilles tendon ruptures, but they those seem to be on the rise the last couple of seasons. So again, we're still, the sample size is small in some of these cases, and we're still monitoring these trends and it'll be interesting to see over the next several seasons, uh, which way those go. So you, you mentioned sort of at the start, you can't really police the the AAU and you know, some pockets of it do well. And obviously there's other youth leagues as well. The NBA brought out guidelines for what they expect players of certain ages to be exposed to in terms of uh, amount of on-court time, things like that. It's obviously going to be a, a much wider cultural thing that's not going to happen overnight. But how are there any solutions out there you can see that can be sort of taken on board uh, relatively quickly to try and correct this. And I realise it won't have an overnight impact. We're looking at now probably two generations of players away for it to have an impact. Is there anything yeah, that you can you sort know, of see? We've seen it a little bit in American baseball with the reduction of, you know, pitch counts for, for younger players. You know, with the Tommy John epidemic over over here has been particularly bad amongst youth youth baseball players. So they've started closely monitoring and limiting how much a pitcher can pitch and, and how frequently he can pitch. And I think that would probably be the place to start is, you know, how many games do we play in a one tournament? You know, does it need to be, you know, okay, you get this, this many games or appearances per week or month or whatever the case may be. Um, you know, <laughs> it, are you going to have high school coaches working with their AAU coaches to understand, you know, the difference between the different sports and, and, and counting. And so, so really player tracking in terms of just sheer number of games played would potentially be a place to start. Now it, it can be hard because it's hard to keep up with everybody and uh, do the different things that need to be done, but it, it's possible. It would just, like you said, take some time to see if those would have any any true effect. Do you think the way that the NBA has sort of expanded with, you know, we've got the the BAL in, in Africa now as the first sort of subsidiary league, or that, you know, that would be the long-term goal. You've got the G League, obviously, NBA academies in, in India and in China, in uh, Australia. You've got the junior NBA, which has leagues all over the world. Do you think this is the the slow burning? The NBA will start to reach out into deeper pockets so it can control the uh, the sport more, or do you, or do you, you know, is, am I just am I just reading far too much into this? No, I think it's number one is trying to to get basketball to reach different pockets, right? You you definitely want to put the basket the, the uh, basketball in the hands of some guys that have never even potentially thought about that. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've seen that with with guys like Serge Ibaka, Pascal Siakam, Joel Embiid, who you know didn't find basketball until later in in their adolescence, and, and now they're you know headliners in the NBA, mm-hmm. and, and you know so you're able to reach to them. But the big thing, and I think the NBA and the Players Association are doing a good job with this, is is educating those groups in the process. So not just, you know, teaching basketball, but teaching ways to potentially, um, you know, skill set, take care of your body, rest, recuperate, recover, those kinds of things, because that's really what's going to start to see a big difference is, is how not only now, now that the guys are getting, uh, uh, introduced to the skills in the game itself, it's, it's how do they go about, uh, you know, taking care of their bodies in the process. That's going to be potentially beneficial down the road. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you mentioned you were a Dallas fan at the start, so let, let's talk about Luca for a minute. <laughs> when you watch, are you still able to watch as a fan, or are you, are you constantly analysing biomechanics or you know whatever it is, uh, some sort of exertion or the, the way he moves? 
are you still just able to just sort of revel in in this this greatness that we're all witnessing at the moment? Sometimes, you know, it's it's hard to turn it off. I'm the the worst guy to watch a game with sometimes um, in terms of those kinds of things because even the slightest little tweak of an ankle, I you know, I'm like instantly like, okay, if that was a lateral ankle sprain inversion, you know, my brain never, <laughs> never gets shut off that way. But it's definitely something I watch the game with interest, you know, and that, I think that's one of the things that's that's been interesting to watch with Luca is is coming in, uh, you know, he's been playing so so much basketball since a young age, and to come in and re, re, you know drop some of the weight that he had his rookie season and, and move and, and move the way he does is it, pretty impressive. I mean, I, I think you've, you've seen a lot of people talk about the different ways he approaches the game in terms of his style, his acceleration, his deceleration, his control, doing those things. It's a lot of fun to watch. And when the, when the results are what they are, it's even even more astounding because it's it's just been so much fun to watch, you know, as a <laughs> Mavericks fans were blessed with a guy for 21 years mm-hmm. who, you know, was an iron man for mo- by, by all accounts. And, you know, Dirk was just amazing, uh, you know, on the court, off the court for the city of Dallas. And then for his retirement to coincide with the introduction of this kid has just been, been ridiculous. It's, it's been so much fun to watch and it's just, it's, it's very exciting. Do, do you think that he's almost uh, like a, a test case um, in the in the league, because obviously his, his his entire basketball education was was far different, you know, coming through the Euro uh, European system with with Real Madrid, um, and obviously in Slovenia before that. Uh, do, do you think that he could be used as a uh, a case study? As because he, he he doesn't play the same way most of the league plays in terms of he's not this uh, and. I'm acutely aware that by any normal standard, he is probably a freak athlete, but by NBA standards, he's not this super explosive high flyer. He's not the quickest on the court. Do you think that, that his, his all around, I'm trying, I'm trying to think how to phrase this, but just the way he approaches the game and the way he is physically is, could be a case study going forwards for, for how differently things could be done. I mean, obviously this is a small sample size in partway through the year two. I, I get what you're saying, and I do. You know, I, I think everyone is going to be paying attention potentially a little bit with with more intent in some of the uh, the other prospects to come out of similar situations now. Um, and I do think, you know, the way in which he was brought up it is, like you said, an interesting case study because, you know, he's been playing with with professionals since he i mean was 16 mm-hmm. you know like um, at this extremely young age but playing playing at a high level and so you know his learning curve is a little bit different than uh, you know a potentially american born player who went through the aau system went to one year of college or potentially two years of college and then and then made the made the leap to the nba so you know it's it's like what i said earlier everything needs to be taken kind of on a case to case study. And, and, you know, how do you take, how do you learn from that case and apply it to other instances where it potentially help? And it might not be the whole thing. It might be just little things like, okay, this is what Luca did well and it was applicable to him and let's try it. Okay. It didn't work for you, but this, this thing, this other thing he did does. So let's, let's adopt that into our model and, and do whatever we can to, to make sure we're, we're maximizing your, your talent, your playing style, your physical attributes. Is there anything about his, his, physical um movement on the court that you see that's different to anyone else or you know is is particularly good that you you know as a specialist would identify that others wouldn't 
he just he seems to be in control uh, of his body. You know, you don't see a lot of you know he's he's all these guys are tall, but you know uh, how he moves seems to be pretty fluid um, and in control. And he can accelerate and decelerate pretty quickly um, given his size, um, but it's always it's always in control, and that's what really makes him uh, valuable in my opinion. I mean, you know, I think the physical comparisons people have compared him a little bit to Harden, which the way he moves as well, and and I think that's that's pretty pretty fair comparison okay final question for you because you know i don't i don't want to keep you too long how much stock are you putting in the mvp chatter for him i mean it's it's kind of an ongoing thing with us it's a small sample size you know i, I think if he can continue to do this over 82 games uh it, it, he definitely deserves to be in the conversation it's hard to ignore what Giannis is doing i mean he won the mvp last year and he's arguably better <laughs> this season mm-hmm. um and so i, I think and then you look at a guy like LeBron who, you know, is in year what 17 for him and he's leading the league in assists and, and, you know, adapted his style of play. I mean, that guy is just a chameleon. I mean, he knows how to train his body and do the things he needs to do at that moment in that game to maximize everybody on the floor. And so that's really impressive. And then you have other guys that and and then in the end are going to have their own arguments. James Harden's almost averaging forty points a game. You know? like, <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's just insane. The statistical numbers that these guys are putting up right now is just just mind boggling. And so, I think you can make a strong case for anybody. And I think Luca, best based on what's happened so far, deserves to be in that conversation. Yeah, Yanis is another one who whose physiological change since entering the league as that sort of baby faced young teen. Um, well, no, well, you know, 18, 19 year old. So what he is now where he is just a, a mountain. I, I mean, that's yeah. an incredible turnaround. But thank you very much for your time. Uh, thank you to everyone who's listening. Uh, if you're not already, make sure you go and follow uh, Jeff at In Street Clothes on Twitter. Check out the website, instreetclothes.com. If you're not already subscribed to us, please do. Um, if you are n- not following us on Twitter or any any social media platform, you can get hold of us at Double Clutch UK. Email us admin at Double Clutch UK. Thank you for listening, and I'll speak to you next time. Take care.